critical thinking isn't prized as much as it should be, the ability to find and discern between kinds of information is going to be one of the most important skills in the next couple of decades. Back in episode 12 of the One-Eyed Man podcast, I had Dr. Vasti Rurt on the show as a guest talking about theories of social justice and the hypothesis of changing society's rulebook for the better. And that conversation was inspired by a talk that I saw Vasti give at a philosophy retreat at the end of last year with the University of Stellenbosch and the University of Stellenbosch Business School. Another one of the guest speakers at that retreat was a gentleman by the name of Pila Msmang. Pila is a colleague of Vasti at USB and his focus is the philosophy of science, the metaphysics of race, biosemiotics and theories of minimal cognition. Now, I wanted to speak to Pila predominantly about his view on the role that philosophy plays in our current uh, moment in time, in this moment of uncertainty and unpredictability, but we very soon got onto a conversation around race as well, which is arguably the most important conversation we can have right now. It was a challenging conversation. Pila really encouraged me to think differently about my views, really encouraged me to open up my mind to different possibilities on the topic, and I really just wish we had more time. I'm hoping to get him onto the show in future to discuss these these topics and others in more detail, but I hope you enjoy this discussion as much as we did, and I look forward to similar ones in future. Uh, so, Pila, thank you so much for taking some time to chat to me this morning. I really appreciate it. I know you're on a, a small break at the moment and things are going to get crazy again. But maybe I could start by asking you how a young man that grew up in KwaZulu-Natal finds himself uh, in the Republic of Stellenbosch in the philosophy department at, at the university there. T- tell me a little bit about your your journey to that incredibly renowned and respected faculty. Okay, yeah. So I don't know where to start the story, but I studied at UKZN, I got my master's there, and during my master's, while I was studying for the master's, I went around the country giving talks uh, in different areas of philosophy uh, just to advertise myself because I knew I'd be needing a job soon after, and Stellenbosch was one of the places I gave a talk. And they'd already known about me. They knew about me already from other conferences and they invited me over to give a talk. And then I had an interview and yeah, that's how I ended up at Stellenbosch University. How different has the experience of Stellenbosch University been from the University of KwaZulu-Natal? There are a number of differences that I noticed as soon as I arrived here. Stellenbosch tends to be I don't know how to put it, greener. <laughs> There's more trees and things <laughs> okay. uh, in certain areas of Stellenbosch, at least. And the demographics are very different. The people are very different. And KwaZulu Natal, you're walking around on, on the streets, you usually hear Zulu. Here, you'd hear some Afrikaans. Uh, mm-hmm. The town is a small town. And where I come from is also a small town, uh, Peter Maritzburg. Uh, we often joke back home that I found the Peter Maritzburg of the Western Cape. Because Cape Town is really <laughs> close to Stellenbosch and there's the beach there. And also in Maritzburg, I used to frequent Durban a lot and Durban has the beach there. So, yeah, yeah. I'm in the Maritzburg. Uh, uh, yeah, I might have said the, the, the Hilton of the of the Western Cape. But yeah, yeah Peter yeah, Maritzburg yeah, works yeah. as well, yeah. <laughs> Pretty so, much. so you've been a little bit humble because the story of how you came to love philosophy 
and how you got to the university is, is pretty remarkable in its own right. Like you've had this obsession with knowledge for a very long time. What was the, the catalyst for that, that obsession and love for learning? I don't really know what it is, but I've loved philosophy for a very, very long time. And I've just been interested in different topics in philosophy for a while. And it's what I used to do for fun. Wow. On my phone, go onto Wikipedia, go onto yeah. the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. In the early days yeah. of Facebook, I was in there were specialized philosophy groups. And yeah, just go and argue with strangers on the internet. That was how I learned things. <laughs> Was that back in the old days where you could have a reasonable argument with somebody on the internet? Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> People took themselves very We strange. remember them fondly, yeah. <laughs> it was before everything was memes, memes, and more memes. And Scrib D had started up at around those times as well. I got a lot of um, the, the texts I used to read and Project Gutenberg or Gutenberg. Um, yeah. Yeah. Anything that, I, that I'd come across or hear about, I'd go onto the internet, find um, resources about, and can read. Not everything I read was good, and I found that out sure. later. And some things were were a bit insane. Um, <laughs> You're going to have to give me examples now. Okay, one example, Noam Chomsky. I only found out later that he was a philosopher of language, the first book I read was something to do with him communicating with aliens. And <laughs> I got into David Ick quite a bit. Uh, and that universe of conspiracy theories about the West and aliens and reptilians, someone had written what I could only call like a fan fiction that involved Chomsky. <laughs> yeah. Uh, have, you, have, you, um, have you watched that fantastic movie and the name of it eludes me now, but it's uh, Viggo Mortensen, the guy that was Aragorn in, in Lord of the Rings. He plays this father who's taken his kids off into the wilderness and has no trust for centralized institutions and has no trust for government and no trust for traditional education. And he takes them off. And essentially it's the story of him bringing them up in this kind of excluded environment, literally providing for themselves, you know, hunting and, and gathering and so on. But it's, it's actually a great movie from a, from a philosophical standpoint and they, they don't celebrate Christmas because they believe it's, you know, a celebration of the man and consumerism and everything else, mm -hmm. but they celebrate Noam Chomsky day. <laughs> I thought it was quite funny. <laughs> That's their, their yeah. chosen deity. But yeah, so, so yes, I, th I think we do learn this, right? A lot of what we believe to be true and important and meaningful in our formative years, probably when we were most impressionable, uh, later on we find out uh, can be, quite limiting and quite damaging in some instances. Um, it's quite difficult to unlearn those things, isn't it? What helps is if you have many different kinds of experiences and you have a broad range of things that you've been engaging and interacting with because the ability to compare those different things will allow you to also assess quality of, hey, this sure. seems more plausible than this narrative here. Um, and just through comparison, there's a lot that you can, you can do and sifting out what might be more reliable than something else. But if you just stick to one topic, one issue, and you have tunnel vision about it, you're only as good as the sources that, you, that you're going to be interacting with. So the tools of research actually are very, very important for, I think it's, it's, it's a tool of digital literacy everyone should have because there's everything from how to build a spaceship on the internet to the most insane 
conspiracy theories uh, that are really damaging to society as a whole. So, yeah. I wonder if we've maybe lost, we've lost to a degree the skill of being able to discern reliable information from just information, right? Mm -hmm. uh, because information is so readily available and because there's no barrier to entry in acquiring it. And obviously, you know, information closely tied to knowledge and mm -hmm. we all have an insatiable appetite for knowledge, no matter how, how poor that knowledge is. Is it as simple as there's lots of information, so we appreciate it less? Or is there something else at play, do you think, that's reduced the amount of, what's the word, scrutiny, I think, we place on the information that we're getting? I think it isn't like a straightforward answer to that question. It's a bit of both. But importantly, the loss of trust in institutions. Institutions that we yeah. uh, generally should believe would be telling us the truth. Like the news... Uh, loss of faith in the news, loss of, of faith in experts and expertise. A guy with a blog is now judged the same as someone with a PhD who's been working on a particular mm -hmm. problem their whole entire life. And not just them, the whole entire field can be mistrusted. Mm -hmm. And we trust someone who has a blog who watched four or five YouTube videos. So there's that, the institutional mistrust, the mistrust of institutions rather. And then on the other side... Because there is so much information, I think there's been a trend to thinking that, you know, if you don't know something, you can just Google it and then you will know the answer to that question. But we haven't really had much focus on evaluating information as well, which goes back to what you were saying earlier. So I think it's, it's, it's a combination of, of both. Critical thinking isn't prized as much as it should be, especially when we have this much information. The ability to find yeah. and discern between kinds of information, I think, is going to be one of the most important skills in the coming century. Well, not even in the coming century, in the, in the next couple of decades. And both from just being able to sift through stuff to find what's relevant and evaluate the difference between different sources, but also because of technology and how technology now will be able to fool us in ways that has never been possible before. Uh, whether we're talking about deep fakes, uh, that's that's an area that's pretty interesting at the moment, or these, for me in education, these paper generators that people can use or students can use for their essays or <clears throat> any kind of submission. But there's ways around that, for at least like the, the papers and the, and the essay submissions for now. Mm-hmm. But sure. it means that we need to, it's like an arms race. We need to keep our critical faculties, you know, the critical thinking skills above where the technology is to be able to fool us. But there's a point where I think it doesn't really, we can't discern the difference between what's real and what's not real. Like with the deep fake yeah. example, someone could make a really, really convincing video and make it seem like you're saying something or make it seem like I'm saying something, but that's where the role of institutions will come back and become very important again. Trusted institutions. That's where journalism yeah. will have uh, the, the respect for, for journalism and, and institutions that are supposed to inform the public about things. That will come back into prominence, I believe, once the internet is flooded with fake videos, once it's flooded, because that, that, that reasserts one of its central functions for us in society. 
Yeah, I think we we might land land up with a heavier reliance on institutions, and and this, the one scary thought is that the institutions we rely on to help us discern these things on the internet aren't always incentivized to do so, right? So Google and Facebook and the other bastions of, I guess, what regulatory frameworks there are on the internet haven't necessarily proved themselves to be deeply trustworthy in the sense. So that there's a there's a question mark around that. But another maybe unintended consequence of if anything can be fake. Right. Or, or, or you can produce a level of realism with something that is fake. Then anything that I look at, I'm going to question that might be a good thing that if I look at every video that I see with a level of skepticism, that might be a good thing. Because I guess what, what we have baked into us, those of us who you know weren't necessarily born in the digital era, I know you're quite a lot younger than me and Callum's looking at me. He's definitely younger than me. But if you, if you can remember an analog world, there's an inherent sense of trust that you have for the published word, for something on a screen, for something that looks like a newspaper or a, you know, we know that if a certain email is formatted to look like a type of news site or a, a website is formatted to look a certain way, just based on how we've been trained to trust certain fonts and, you know, arrangements of information and completely random associations that speak not at all to the integrity of the contents. If we start believing, even the most analog of us, start believing that everything's fake, maybe that's a good thing. But then do we also think everything we see on the news is fake, Mail and Guardian, CNN? There has to be more than just the skepticism because we won't be able to verify every piece of information that ever comes that we ever come across. So we really yeah. do need to fight for having truthful, reliable institutions. Yeah. Well, I certainly believe in that. And I, I mean, I was so impassioned by the level of misinformation that was being distributed in the early parts of the kind of pandemic and lockdown that I, I built a whole like a, a decision tree that people could use that some guy then adapted into a website where you could literally click on the buttons. You know, do I know the source? Can I confidently vary? Anyway, and then I posted that to LinkedIn thinking I was very smart. And somebody on LinkedIn challenged me and said, well, hold on a second. Actually, an, an academic at UJ, you're asking the person to say, do I know that this is true or can I trust the source? But inherently, that brings into question, you know, is anything true or is any new source completely unbiased? Is that even possible to achieve? So, I mean, that's a, that's a deeply philosophical discussion in its own right. But how do you think about fake news and misinformation and the impact it has on the world around us? Yeah, it's a sign of the times, really, in, in my opinion. Our ability to produce information at the moment is far outstretching our ability to process it. And this is affecting yeah. so many different areas of our lives systematically. Yeah. Uh, when it comes to news and democracy, the incentives are also very wrong. The incentives yeah. are such that, well, let's, let's take the news example. Publish yeah. something that will get clicks and get people onto your website. Um, the role of fact checkers, all of a sudden now there are independent fact checkers, but no fact checkers in a newsroom. How are you publishing sure. stories which have not been verified in the news? And the yeah. fact checkers are an external third party. That there isn't anything inherently wrong with the third party fact checker. I think that's actually very good because it also yeah. gives some level of objectivity. Objectivity. Yeah. Although no one can actually be absolutely objective, it helps having an extra pair of eyes that might not have the same institutional pressures that you do. Sure. Sure. But we also need quality control 
at that very stage in the newsroom before things come out into the world. We don't have too much of a problem with that at the moment, I believe, because people still have ethics and those guide them to at least not go too far on this clickbaits. But we're seeing things slowly develop towards more superficial kinds of stories, news articles that aren't really news articles. They're just aggregated content that mm -hmm. some aimless journalist 15 articles ago down the chain actually wrote and the other news sites or media houses that have reproduced the story can't actually verify. Um, I don't want to sound too negative because this now makes me, it might make me sound like I don't trust the news or something. No, the news is trustworthy, but there are these problems that make it vulnerable to the spread of false stories. And then we have people who are bad actors. I call them bad actors because they act in bad faith and they act in order to try and manipulate people using the mass yeah. media, for example. This gives them this gives them the ability to put something out there in the world that they themselves know is absolutely false and will only later be counted. And all the people that have already seen it, the damage is already done. Not everyone who yeah. see the original shocking, controversial thing will get the follow-up correction of, oh, okay, wait, uh, we had this and this and this factor. So I think we should really yeah. be careful and take the time even if it means news reaches us a little bit later than it does, mm. even if it means that we need to change the financial incentives of how it is that we consume our media and consume the news, I think that would do a lot for democracy. That would do a lot for just how we carry ourselves and understand the things that we interact with. Oh, sure, yeah. Difficult to figure out how to put that genie back in the bottle, though, because you know it's it's worth acknowledging that you and I are sitting here as consumers of news and you, you apologize for being negative. I actually thought you were being really optimistic. <laughs> I'm slightly more cynical than you are, but you know, we have such a significant role to play as consumers, right? Because ultimately our propensity to click on something, our propensity to talk about it or share it is the source of the revenue that's going to incentivize the type of news that's being created. And as you rightly you know, illustrate, we don't have the patience to wait. I don't want to wait six hours to pick up a news newspaper at the local CNA. And, yeah. you know, these are, these are completely ridiculous ideas now. I, I want it immediately. I want it before everyone else. And ideally I want to post it to Twitter. So I get some social media, wow. you know, virtue signaling clout that one of my mates doesn't have. I'm really concerned about this. If this is your first time listening to The One-Eyed Man and you're wondering what I'm trying to achieve here, why don't you take a moment to go back to the trailer episode at the beginning of Season 1. It's really short, I promise, and will give you some insight and context. If you're enjoying the show, please consider sharing this episode or The One-Eyed Man channel with, well, all of your friends in the entire world. And now, back to the show. How many views can there be on a topic like this, right? There's just... There's yeah. There's one view and it's not, you know, and, and I'm aware of that, even as I you know speak about it, that these are the most important things that we can talk about. I don't think Sam Harris has been very useful for these kinds of conversations, to be honest. He is part of what I would view creates additional problems and tensions when we should be having 
constructive conversations. It was, okay, um, that's helpful. Yeah. The Murray, the Murray, he had Murray on his show at some point. There was a podcast uh, that he had, and I think it was okay. Forbidden Knowledge, Forbidden Knowledge, and it was about right. race and IQ and race and biology. Yes, so he was, yeah, he was strongly criticized for he allowed Charles Murray onto the show or invited Charles Murray onto the show to talk about Charles Murray is is infamous for publishing the bell curve and for the obvious problems around that publication. Yeah. So look, this is not a defense in any way, shape or form of Sam Harris, but his position as I understood it, because he then went on to have a a really interesting debate. He said, my motivation here is not to endorse Charles Murray's viewpoint. He said, what is important is that we can talk about things that are difficult to talk about. Yeah. That was how he defended his position. So let me make the with um, something different. We are on the History Channel and we are yeah. talking about theories about how the pyramids are built. What Sam yes. Harris basically did was bring David Icke and compare David Icke's views to Egyptologists or you know archaeologists. The views yeah. which Murray was discussing aren't views that are held in the sciences at the moment, there, there are a few individuals yeah. here and there, but it's more fringe than anything and have been sure, sure. rebutted over and over and over and over again. Yeah. And yeah. the reason yeah. for them coming up usually these days is there has nothing to do with science. It usually is as uh, a tool in some sort of rhetoric or ideological move about um, what it might mean if there were biological rates. Mm. The defense of a belief. Yeah. Rather yeah, than the yeah. operating more on the ideological level than on the academic level. There's a completely separate, different kind of debate happening in academia right now about if race is social, biological, or doesn't exist at all. And it's considerably different from the types of views that you were hearing in that podcast. Part of the deplatforming of of Murray, I think one of the arguments they made was about that, that we're giving giving platforms to views that that aren't even scientific, that don't stand. Illegitimate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. But I think every this is your area of expertise, right? This is what you research is the the metaphysics of race and the the meeting place or the intersection between science belief and sort of social construct that that intersection right yeah can you tell us a bit more about that uh yeah uh, i think it was about 2014 ish maybe yeah. i heard about this thing called Bidel. Bidel is this medication that was the first in america to be that could be prescribed uh, to african-americans specifically for heart disease and i thought huh That's interesting. I wonder what that means. It must mean that maybe there's something specific about being black or African-American that must make this medication work differently on them than it does to other people. But Mm -hmm. through research and reading, it just so happens to be, it was more of a PR thing. It was more of a, and trying to cut, cut out a niche in the market and use clever branding for a drug that already existed in the market was just repackaged and presented to a particular demographic because, you know, 
cut out yourself a niche, you're more likely to sell. Yeah. So it's a very terrible example of something that might have uh, a population specific effect. Yeah. It might match onto a social group. But yeah. once I discovered that, that this medication existed, it got me interested in the question specifically of uh, are there any biological theories of race that work? What is race? What are races? And yeah, yeah, man, been investigating that in parallel with my other area of research ever since. Seems like most of the things I do are philosophy of biology and then mm-hmm. um, social issues, specifically racism and race. So if we think about how predominant a topic this is in any meaningful conversation around redress or around uh, inequality or around societal dysfunction or around the remnants of decisions that were made in the past that we are still paying for. And I, I mean, I don't say we, including myself in that. I mean, the proverbial we again, yeah. that the world is still painful. How do you see philosophy playing more of a role in us solving? I mean, this is, we're talking about inordinate levels of complexity. How do you see the, the practice of philosophy and the discipline of philosophy playing a, a more significant role in having better conversations around the space? Uh, that's a really, really big question here and abroad. Something <laughs> yeah. that, you know, we're struggling with right now because many people don't really see it as an issue that should be tackled predominantly by philosophers or that philosophers mm. might not have a very big role in uh, solving these kinds of problems. But I think that's my something that has to do with being afraid to um, engage with this type of thing more honestly. Because uh, mm. we're, we're complicit in a lot of ways. Historically speaking, even the idea of race itself, philosophers had a lot to do with. The theorizing of particular groups, do these groups that we now call um, well, whether it depends on, on the on the on, on the theory of race that we're talking about, but the whole idea of there being races in the first place was a philosophical invention. Uh, mm-hmm. Application of of taxonomic principles that were being developed to describe the whole natural world. These are developments that go hand in hand. Developments in evolutionary biology and theory around that, and also philosophers' roles in the shaping of the ideas about what those groups would mean and how those groups have particular places in society, especially arguments that have to do with races having different values uh, or being Mm. valued differently in and of themselves. The association between, say, light skin and goodness. Um, there's, There's a lot that philosophers can do Firstly, to understand how it is that we've come to where we are, to sort these different concepts and clarify what each of these concepts are, uh, evaluate what's bad about them, how these concepts then also have effects on other aspects of our lives, how these fit in a broader ideology. There is a lot, I think, that philosophers could do on the question of race from that superficial level to the more underground uh, issues that have to do specifically with racism, 
with the operation of racism in society, how it continues on and play our role like every other citizen should be playing their role in imagining a world that can be different, that doesn't have these issues that we are faced with right now. I, I think a lot about, um, and I've, I've been doing sort of rediscovering some of, of the history that, that surrounds the geopolitical history that surrounded the, the conditions that created the possibility for the great war and, and the second world war. And these sort of moments in time that, you know, in the, the humanity continuum are literally a second ago, but feel so long ago uh, in other respects. And yet it seems like very little has changed. And you hear about how, how bizarrely, different people would see each other just based on the fact that they lived on either side of a border, a border that was created in the imaginations and in, in the mythology of men and, you know, and, and by governments or by institutions that again, we trusted to have our best interests at heart. And uh, in those incredible stories told of, of French and German soldiers that uh, on the first Christmas in the trenches on the Western front in the great war put down without anybody coordinating it, put down their weapons got up out of the trenches, walked over to each other. These are people that have been literally blowing each other to bits for the rest of the war and exchanged chocolate and cigarettes and sang songs together and couldn't speak a word of each other's language, but, but were suddenly connected by this realization that this is ridiculous what we're doing, first of all. And second of all, we didn't choose this. And third of all, like I actually quite dig you and you're like me and you know, is am I oversimplifying your position on this by, with that metaphor? Or do you think of racial constructs in a similar way? I'd say it's a little bit of an oversimplification because in the real life example, the people in the trenches actually would, one of the two at least, would benefit from the state of war, the ridiculousness and the, the injustices happening that there is, sure. the parties are, are, are differently incentivized in that situation. And it's not just yeah. we fighting here randomly and I might die, you might die, and no one gets anything out of it. Um, in the way in which the social constructs of race works in society, races uh, benefit differently from the kind of uh, racial structure that we have, given yeah. the way yeah. in which... Uh, it's played out through history. We understand that different benefits were conferred on people, different rights, different uh, economic opportunities, uh, where you get to live, segregation. Yeah. And, you know, there's how, how your parents were educated, how you yourself were educated, and not just on the interpersonal level were these problems, but they were institutional. They were at the level of government even. They were legal. If you're talking about education, the Bund Education Act, if you're talking about yep. segregation, where there's a number of different yep. versions of legislation that uh, made that into a reality in South Africa. Yeah. But it, it permeates every level of society is the point, that, that there were laws, yep. Yep. Um, uh, there were institutions, there was also interpersonal conflicts, um, but all of them within this, this structure where uh, race is some kind of organizing principle. Uh, you meet a person, yeah, you yeah. either trust them or don't trust them on the basis of that, or you hate them or you love them or whatever. So there is a kind of ridiculousness in the, that, that matches up with your example of in the trenches, because like, what is this even? But because yeah. of the incentives 
um, that uh, groups have in this. The continuation of exploitation of, say, poor people, uh, poor black people uh, in the country has directly to do with the benefits that one gets from having cheap labor. So those kinds of those kinds of things make the examples a little bit different. No, I fully appreciate that. I fully appreciate that. Yeah, I think where I see similarities, though, is just how far apart we can be based on an imaginary construct, uh, on a myth, and the myths that are handed down and compounded over years, and how much those myths can separate people who have no... What you're saying is there are significant material differences here. You're talking about one army that has guns and the other army that's it has nothing. So that that's how different the advantages are in this this circumstance, or at least in this this example. But I think that what I'm interested in hearing from you is, and specifically through the lens of philosophy, is how do we create the spaces for for conversations like this? How do we create better spaces for conversations on topics that seem on the face of it at the moment, the way the world is right now, uh, virtually impossible to discuss? I'm not really sure. I wish I had the answer to that, but they things yeah. I try to do. But the thing is, who are the people that are always putting in the effort to have these conversations happen? Sure. Um, who are the yeah. people that must always be doing the work of taking, taking on conversations in good faith, whereas what's happening yeah. socially might not be in good faith, but yet you still want to come yeah. and you know, try to have a reasonable discussion about these kinds of things. Um, and it's yeah. on various levels, from academia to our politics, down to just like you meet someone in the bar and the conversation of, of race comes up. Uh, it's, it, it can be tricky. It can be tricky because of, of those other factors that come to bear on the question of race. It, yeah. it, it isn't an abstract, far, far off domain where we don't really see the direct results of the, some of the thoughts that people might have on race um, compared to sure. other types of philosophical questions. And I think that's why it might cause discomfort, both in the academy and in like ordinary everyday life for people to discuss these things. And perhaps why it's a real pity that it isn't more explored in, as you mentioned, it's, it's, it's an unexplored or unmined uh, opportunity in the, in the realm of philosophy. Yeah, it's underexplored, but internationally right now, there's actually been quite a boom in interest in the philosophy of, of race and the metaphysics of race that I'd say started somewhere in the late 80s, early 90s, and in at least the area that I'm, that I'm in, the re-examination of the question. Because after the Second World War, there was a, uh, an attitude to let's just leave this alone. Sure, um, sure. That's fair. Yeah. But interest has, um, interest academically, let me put it that way, interest academically has grown because obviously the people suffering under racial oppression, segregation, Jim Crow, apartheid here in South Africa, all mm -hmm. across the globe, people have been having these problems. It's just that academically it's taken very long for us to re recognize this as a central problem in our societies and for some people to at least think that it's worth. Their, their intellectual time to try to figure out these issues. You know, one of the ways I know that 
the movements that we're witnessing at the moment are important is in the small signs and small moments and small conversations that wouldn't have happened before that that are happening now. And as an example, I was in a long drive with my kids recently and my daughter's 11 and my son is 15 and uh, Kate pipes up and says, Dad, can I chat to you quick? And I said, yeah, of course. I turned the radio down and she said, what do you think of the Black Lives Matter movement? Mm. And it opened up a, a two hour long conversation around the movement, around the response to the movement, around their role within their social uh, networks and within their groups, what is expected of them and the pressure they feel around. Like there's, I mean, there's a number of kind of, um, uh, you know, my, my older kid is on Instagram and, and uh, you know, there's, there's a little bit of social pressure around if you don't post uh, your support, then you are complicit. And, you know, so we spoke about those things. What, how does that make you feel? And what, but now that whole conversation, that, that two hours worth of discussion doesn't happen without the movements. And I think it's worth acknowledging that some of those, you know, these are, these are critical things for us as a, as a family to talk about that we have the luxury of not having to talk about normally, right? Like if it's me and three mates on the golf course, we don't really have to talk about this unless we consider it to be, mm. And that, yeah, and this is why this matters so much is because it, 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 uh, I, I mean, at the very least, and I mean, I'm being, but, you know, this is something that we need to acknowledge. Uh, if, you know, if you occupy a position of privilege, that the luxury of not having to talk about it is part of the privilege. And that's, that's quite a difficult thing to, to get past if, and, and sadly, often it, it means that things need to reach ahead or there needs to be a, a moment or an incident that forces it into the, the consciousness. That's why I, I appeal to you to go, how do we, and I would love to have more of these conversations with you because I imagine I'd, I'd learn a ton from, from your research. For people who want to have more conversations like this, for people who want to expand their thinking, experiment with new ideas, challenge their assumptions and biases, what resources do you point people to to start them on a on a journey of of kind of questioning or critical thinking around their belief systems around race? Uh, okay, it depends on the platform and on like what type of interaction that we're having. Sure. As an educator, it's easy. I can just give you readings. What about somebody that that wants to watch some stuff on YouTube? Oh, yeah, what would you yeah. give them to? There's, there are a lot of interesting movies and series that are out there, and it, Depends on the country as well, but there are some general lessons that we can learn from movies or series like When They See Us. Yeah. There's things that well, one could read. Last night I was watching uh, Serafina, as I do uh, every once in a while. I remember as a kid I used to watch Serafina on, on June 16th. Sure. It, it, it isn't... Uh, the greatest historical resource, but it might be a way to start someone easily into starting to see part of the issues around something like that day. Uh, and then once once they, they hooked and into that, then you can actually send them uh, historical accounts, reading material, or have a face-to-face -face or just a conversation about what was going on in 1976 and how some of those problems are still problems we have right now. Yeah, because although legally some things have fallen away in people's lives, um, we still have these issues. The remnants are there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, sometimes it is this very same issue, the exact same issue, an under-resourced yeah. school yeah. where your life chances and, and the prospects of your life don't extend uh, beyond a particular level of economic participation. 
those kinds of challenges still exist for, for, for the majority of, of the country. The use of language as an exclusionary tool in academic settings, uh, that's not something that just happened in the past. Those kinds of days can remind us of, of, of those kinds of issues. And what we need to do is be honest, to be really honest with ourselves in the institutions that we're in and be brave enough to answer those questions and to, to be fair enough to engage and forget about your discomforts. Um, you'll feel it, but know that engagement is more important than being uncomfortable about something. And if you care about justice, if you care about, you know, doing the right thing or thinking about doing the right thing, then that should be incentive enough to engage, even if it makes you feel uncomfortable. That seems like a really good, a really good soundbite, actually, um, to summarize the conversation. And I, I, I really do appreciate your generosity and your time. I know that you're super busy and I know that this week it's back to, well, back to some semblance of normal. So from Friday, you're going to be a chock-a-block again. I would love to have another conversation with you sometime. I think it would be good to revisit this and to continue, uh, you know, your voice. Unfortunately, there's only really the one video of you on, on YouTube, but I think your voice is an important one in the mix and we'd love to hear more of it. I'm certainly on this and other topics as well. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for having me on your show. Only a pleasure. You take it easy. Chat soon. Thanks. You've been listening to the One-Eyed Man podcast. I'm Mike Stopforth, an entrepreneur, writer, and public speaker, deeply curious about discovering better ways to lead and better ways to live in an increasingly complex world. I find the best source of these ideas is the experience and wisdom of interesting people who are taking unconventional approaches to solving the world's most compelling problems. If you'd like to hear from someone I haven't yet spoken to, visit MikeStopforth.com, click on the podcast link, and send through your suggestions. A big thanks to the Solid Gold Podcast Studios in Johannesburg, South Africa for making this production possible. And remember, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man slash person is king. You've been listening to another episode from the Solid Gold Podcast Studios.